Welcome back. And in the midst of a very volatile trading day, let's talk about justice. Or injustice, as it were. Particularly the criminalization of poverty in the United States. It's really hard to know where to begin with, the, with, with this topic, so I'm just going to dive right in with this headline. Jail time for unpaid court fines and fees can create cycle of poverty. It's from February 9th, 2015. Uh, it's an NPR piece. And uh, to NPR's credit, this, is a, this, this particular article is part of a whole series they did uh, uh, called um, Guilty and Charged pretty much all about this, I almost want to call it extractive, the way um, fines are levied against people who have no ability to pay them. So, Joseph Shapiro's article here at NPR goes on. On a night last week when temperature dropped to 17 degrees, Edward Brown, who's 62 and homeless, slept at the bus stop in front of the Jennings, Missouri City Hall in St. Louis County. Quote, it was cold, very cold, he says. It's so cold I can't really move, so I kept playing with my feet, rubbing them, twisting them, trying to keep warm. Brown's trouble started when he tried to fight the city of Jennings, and his story shows how court fines and fees can grow, turning an impoverished person's life upside down. The city wanted to condemn his small, crumbling house where he had lived for 25 years. Officials sent him a citation for letting the grass grow too high. Brown stayed in the house after his condemnment received a citation for trespassing. Trespassing in his own home. Stephanie Lummis, an attorney at Arch City Defenders who now represents Brown, says he had been bedridden from injuring his back and was unable to push a lawnmower. He was ticketed, too, for not getting a rabies vaccine for his dog, Matrix. Altogether, Brown owed the city $464, but he lives on a $488 Social Security check and food stamps, so he didn't pay his fines. I went to jail for that, he says. Since 2009, he's been jailed several times, once for 30 days, another time for 20 days. Now, this is not an unfamiliar story. Um, there's a, there, at the time, there was a, there was a group of lawyers suing the city in Ferguson and Jennings, both St. Louis uh, suburbs, the, the, uh, over the heavy use of court fines and fees on traffic tickets and other low-level misdemeanor violations. When people can't pay those fines, the lawsuits claim the city's arrest and keep them, sometimes for a week at a time in dirty, overcrowded jails. And... So reading from another uh, art NPR article, part of this whole series, Guilty and Charged, um, they're saying in 1983, the high court ruled that judges can't jail people because they're too poor to pay. But this NPR investigation finds that judges are still using jail time as punishment for non-payment. Over, if you go over to Truth Out on Sunday, there's an article published, Jailing the Poor for Fines and Bail is a Government-Operated Loan Shark Operation. This is an interview with Mark Carlin, with Peter Edelman, who has a, um, a book out called Not a Crime to be Poor, The Criminalization of Poverty in America. I have not read the book. I'd very much like to check it out. Marty Carlin asks, Why is Ferguson, Missouri a symbol of the criminalization of poverty? And Peter Edelman responds, 
The killing of Michael Brown coincidentally brought to daylight that city's seemingly bizarre method of obtaining revenue, arresting its population over and over for minuscule offenses, especially its African-American community, and then hitting them with exorbitant fines and fees and jailing them when they are unable to pay. The practice, including extensive driver's license suspensions, had been occurring nationally, but few were aware of that. I would argue people, few white people were aware of that because we aren't necessarily being targeted the same way for this. Well, it, it depends, and it depends upon where you are. I mean, this is definitely a thing in West Virginia, and if you're poor and white in a rural area in West Virginia, um, there, you know, it's not unlikely that the police force won't decide that you're an unse that you're a CD person, and they they'll bust your ass just the same way um, that 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 minorities are generally treated across the the country that's my editorializing peter edelman goes on and it began with the anti-tax movement in the reagan years which had caused court systems and entire state finance structures to turn to charging the system's customers but people hit with fines and fees in their own municipalities thought it was a local phenomenon some lawyers and public officials especially judges and journalists finally caught on and the problem accelerated at the great recession Ferguson broke it open. He goes on, It is a government-operated loan shark operation. Slapped with court debts that can easily begin at $1,000, counting fines and fees both. People are hooked. Not able to keep up with payment plans. More is added with interest fees for phony probation, public defenders and additional fees, and fees for room and board. The court debt routinely increases the $5,000 and more. In many instances, time in jail comes from not making a time on a payment plan, and in many instances, in unconstitutionally. Money bail plays a big role. Arrested on a minor matters, people are held in jail on bail for $500, $1,000, or much more. Their only path out is to plead guilty. That done, then they're in the, the clutches of a payment plan, and the squeeze goes on and on. Uh, it sounds a lot like student debt, doesn't it? Uh, you know, This is one of the things that really drives me crazy because once you see it it's everywhere um the the debt traps that are everywhere it's just impossible to get out of the other day i was talking about you know you get out of prison and you need to get a job immediately but to get a job you need a cell phone you need an id you need 35 bucks to get an id but you can't get a job to get that 35 bucks so you panhandle and that gets you a fine now you're in the hole. Sarah Van Gelder originally published over at Yes Magazine, Tuesday, February 6, 2018. Yes, lots of people go to jail because they can't pay a fine. The United States has the largest incarcerated population in the world, climbing from 600,000 to over 2 million in just a few decades. We also have the highest percentage of population behind bars of any country. The people most likely to languish behind bars are black, Latino, Native American, and poor. It's a legacy rooted in Jim Crow era policies that continues in the thinly veiled racism of the war on drugs, as lawyer Michelle Alexander points out in her, in her book, The New Jim Crow, which, by the way, has been banned from uh, uh, school or uh, j prisons up in New Jersey and New York. Uh, the ACLU is bringing forth a case on it. I need to check into how that's going. But the new Jim Crow. 
it's one of those like really you know do they realize the irony here and that this information will get out that they're banning the new jim crow from our prison systems also do they not think that the prisoners don't know that they're in a sort of a setting like this who's gonna it's mind-boggling anyway but there's a number that dwarfs that prison population sarah van gelder goes on Nearly 5 million people are under some sort of parole or probation supervision in the United States. It's a fourfold increase since 1980, according to a new report released last week by Columbia University's Justice Lab. During that time, the requirements for people under judicial supervision have become more stringent. The number of conditions people must adhere to has increased, for example, as the length of supervision, as has the length of supervision required. As a result, many people wind up in jail, not for committing another crime, but for a technical violation of probation or parole conditions. By the way, this is basically they're setting up, they've set up this system with our health insurance now. Where the, the insurance companies are allowed to set these very stringent terms for payment and all this. And, you know, just a few days and they, they, the Republicans want to be able to have the insurance companies kick you off their plan. Just a few days of missed payment. Which is absurd when you consider that how much of America is, again, working in the service industry with just-in-time scheduling. In fact, so Sarah Mandic Elder goes on, in fact, from 1990 to 2004, the rate of people on probation who were sent back to jail for non-compliance grew by 50% from 220,000 to 330,000, according to the report. This suggests a way to vastly reduce the rate of imprisonment in the United States just by reducing the number of people who wind up in jail because of these technical violations. In some cases, the infractions that send someone back to jail are as simple as coming late to a meeting with a parole officer or failing to make payments on a fine. Being a person of color increases the odds of winding up in prison for a parole violation, according to a study by the Urban Institute. One of the most chilling reasons for being sent back to prison is failure to pay a fine or court supervision fees. Payments that can be out of reach for the low-income people most likely to be caught up in the criminal justice system. You know, Sarah Van Gelder is just really, yes, this, these are major issues. In some jurisdictions, she, she writes, about 20% of those serving time were incarcerated because they didn't pay their criminal justice debts. It's a debtor's prison. Which shouldn't be legal in this country. But indentured servants are the were the basis of many of the many people who came over to this country to begin with. Not to be confused with the slaves. There's there's a difference there. Indentured servants had the really an more more of an option than any African slave did when they were dragged when they were when they were captured and chained and brought over here there should be no confusion about oh irish slavery or anything like this it's 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 a whole it's a load consider the impossible situation faced by newly released inmates many are poor when they enter the system along with their conviction comes fines and fees one example, in Washington State, these averaged $1,300 for a felony conviction, according to research by University of Washington sociology professor Alexis Harris, Alexis Harris 
interest is charged on the original debt. And by the time an inmate is released, their debt may have grown quite large. Finding a job that pays enough to make payments on these debts is difficult after incarceration, especially since public housing and other services are denied to those convicted felons. This challenge is even greater for released inmates who are mentally ill, physically disabled, have a history of substance abuse, or have few social support systems. High fines and fee payments may force difficult trade-offs between paying court debt and other necessary purchases. Unsustainable debt coupled with the threat of incarceration may even encourage some formerly incarcerated individuals to return to criminal activity to pay off their debts, says the council issue paper. And that's just it, right? It actually incentivizes you to go... When you're, when you're blocked out of every legitimate entrance into society... It, you're left with 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 few other options and a large a big incentive to go out and rejoin the criminal aspects of society. Our prisons are very good at making people at removing people from society, and they're very bad at returning them to society. I personally prefer the term "returning citizens" to ex-convicts or felons or anything like this because. W- Returning citizens is what we're striving for. But there's a whole trap here. This is over at High Country News. How the private prisons became a booming business. This is all about immigrant detention by Sarah Torrey and Paige Blankenbuehler, May 15th, 2017. Immigrant detention is now the fastest growing form of incarceration in the United States, an increasingly lucrative business that costs taxpayers $2 billion per year. Its roots reach back to the early 1980s with then-President Ronald Reagan's, quote, war on drugs and tough-on-crime laws. The surging numbers of Central Americans fleeing civil war were an easy target for the Reagan administration's focus on illicit drug activity, helping justify the growing use of detention as a means of immigration enforcement. Enforcement picked up steam during the Clinton administration. After 9-11, immigration policy shifted even further from regulation to enforcement, punishment, and deterrence. The result was a growing merger of the criminal justice and immigration systems. Criminal justice, because the conservative war cry is always safety and defense, I and defense through offense. Now, how people who are cannot think anything else about anything except for safety and defense are somehow not considered cowards is beyond me. But it, it makes for an easy way to, to shut down any conversation about any policy to help anyone else. Oh, no, no, no. We can't spend any money on anything this because I'm not 100% certain that I'm 100% safe everywhere now. That's basically what the conservatives argue when they argue for defense spending. And by the way, we should just go back to recalling the Department of Defense the Department of War as it was when this country started. Back to the High Country News article. Although politically popular, it came under fire. Um, in 2008, Heather Williams, first assistant to the Federal Public Defender of Arizona, told the Washington Post that the crackdown immigrants not only diverted attention from real crimes, it offended basic notions of fairness. If U.S. citizens were placed in any other country on the planet and had to resolve a case in a day that could result in being deported and having a criminal record, we would be outraged and so would our government. And rightfully so, I'd add. 
The boom in immigrant detention centers has increased demand for prison companies. Across the West, new detention facilities have emerged in struggling rural communities. Between 1993 and 2013, the industry's profits soared 500%, bolstered by heavy lobbying for increased homeland security spending. By the way, Homeland Heimat. Just remember that. It's very... And there were emails released just after I spoke that a, few, a week or so ago. There were Rumsfeld mentioned that he thought that that was, oh, it sounds awfully German, not American. But then they went ahead and called it that anyway. Because they just don't care. The federal market is being driven, for the most part, as we've been discussing, by the need for criminal alien detention beds. That's consistently being funded. Those are the words of George Zoli, the chairman of Geo Group. And that's what he is telling investors. And you'll always get the most honest things from when, when CEOs are addressing their investors. And if you don't, well, we'll get there. I mean, you, you run into Don Blank, someone like Don Blankenship, and then you just go to jail for a year. But in general, you, ha you should be able to trust that, you know, if, if there's contradicting words coming from a CEO and he says one thing to his investors and another thing to the public, you can guarantee that what he said to the investors is more true. Might not be the whole truth. Going on with the High Country News article here. To protect their bottom line against changes in immigration laws, private prison companies began including guaranteed minimums in contracts with ICE and with local governments, requiring occupancy rates of 80 to 100%. Today, the government spends more than $5 million per day on immigrant detention, while CoreCivic, formerly Corrections Corporation of America, and GeoGroup have doubled their revenue since 2005. Another set of people who don't want to deal with any actual risk in business. So they got guaranteed minimums. Do you think everyone, do you think when you, when you put guaranteed minimums into a contract with municipalities and uh, ICE, that, that ICE will fall short of those obligations if they can't find enough immigrants who have committed a real crime? Or do you think they'll invent crimes and arrest people who are in reality quite innocent? And I'm sorry, not quite innocent, entirely innocent. Innocence is not one of those things of, you know, a degree. You're either innocent or you're not. Now, that's just about immigrants. And I, wanna, I want you to hold that question in your head about whether the ICE officers and local police officers would ever um, lie and have innocent people arrested in order to hit quotas. Just hold that in your head. That story was about immigration control this one's about uh just general incarceration remember again we've criminalized being poor we've criminalized being foreign looking and what happens in our prison system well this is over at aljazeera.com there's another version of this article at the economist but it's behind a paywall um so that's why i'm reading from al jazeera right now david a love and vijay das september 9th 2017 Prisoner abuse runs rampant, and it has extended into modern-day versions of slavery. Last year's prison strike organizers described slavery-like conditions in prisons in, uh, in the nationwide call to action. That strike they're sp speaking about in 2016, more than 24,000 prisoners across 29 prisons in 12 states protested. 
That was 46 years after the Attica prison uprising. The article goes on. Slavery persists by another name today. Young men and women of color toil away in 21st century fields so in hand, and corporate America is cracking the whip. Influenced by enormous corporate lobbying, the United States Congress enacted the Prison Industry Enhancement Certification Program in 1979, which permitted U.S. companies to use prison labor. Coupled with the drastic increase in the prison population during this period, thanks to the war on drugs, as my editorializing, um, the article goes on, profits for participating companies and revenue for the government and its private contractors soared. The Federal Bureau of Prisons now runs a program called the Federal Prison Industries that pays inmates under $1 an hour. The program generated $500 million in sales in 2016, with little of that cash being passed down to the workers. Stateside, where much of the U.S. addiction to mass incarceration lies, is no different. California's prison labor program is expected to produce some $232 million in in sales in 2017. These exploited laborers are disproportionately African-American and Latino, a demographic status quo resulting from the draconian sentencing and other criminal justice policies ransacking minority communities across the United States. African-Americans are incarcerated at a rate five times higher than that of whites. In states like Virginia and Oklahoma, one in every 14 or 15 African-American men are put in prison. We lock people of color up at alarming rates. We put them to work. Corporations gain. This story is an age-old American tradition. Throughout history, our nation has successfully pulled back corporate greed, but private corporations have always found new ways to reap enormous wealth from cheap labor. Although the U.S. Constitution's 13th Amendment prohibited slavery and involuntary servitude, it made an exception, a loophole for, quote, punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, which makes prison labor possible. You know, we already put them in jail. Why not have, why not get sweatshops out of, you know, why not treat prisons as sweatshops? And this is what corporate America says. They, they, as part of their debt to society, it's clearly financial to corporations that they've never, they never, they never harmed. You know, imagine one day you go, you, 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 your car breaks down. You have a flat tire. Your car doesn't break down. You just have a flat tire on your way from home from work one day. So you put the spare on and you get home and you know, you have to drive probably what, 30 miles. Let's say you're in a more rural area, 30 miles to, to your place of work. And you know you can't do that you know, every day on a, on this spare, on a bike tire, basically, on your car. So you go and you replace that tire, and whew, that puts you out, what, a few hundred dollars. You get home, and you uh, open the mail to realize that rushing from your job that's 30 miles away to your job that's only 20 miles away, but you work a night shift at, um, you went by a, you know, uh, some sort of speeding camera set up on the rural country road. One of those speed, you know, it says you're going this fast. Bam. Hey, it got you. So now that's a uh, $70 and you're earning $11 an hour. How are you going to pay those fines? 
Are you going to pay those fines? Or are you going to go on a payment plan and then have to, you know, really stretch it thin? Even if you're a single person, that would be very difficult. And you're more than likely to end up in the debt trap that, that ends you in jail. God forbid if you have a family. There is a flip side to this. Remember the other, the, the very first story I started with, you, you have this, you have um, Edward Brown, who's become homeless as a, after he's been evicted and says it's cold, it's very cold. There's a lot of people, similar situations. Um, and when they get sick, they go to the ER. So this headline over at NPR, January 30th, 2018. ER use goes down as hospital program plays homeless poor homeless people's rent. For the last two years, the University of Illinois has been trying an unconventional treatment for homeless, quote, super user patients in emergency rooms. Finds them a place to live. The medical costs for homeless patients at a Chicago hospital can be 70 times higher than for other patients. Not 17, 70, 70. Many people have chronic medical problems, but homeless patients often end up in the emergency room simply because they want to get off the street. Right? It makes it's a, it makes perfect sense. I mean, especially if you've been denied from a shelter because you brought you know brought some marijuana in with you or heroin or something. I'm not advocating the use of those things, but people are often barred from homeless shelters or food kitchens because because those those things aren't allowed on the premises, or because there's you know there people have drama and homeless people are no different. So there's conflict, and so you know sometimes the ER is the place that's safest and warmest and. Whew, Maybe that bill won't ever actually come around. We're uh, talking to Glenn, ba or the NPR people are talking to Glenn Baker and uh, Miles Bryan is talking to Glenn Baker. Bryan says, Baker's housing has been paid for by the University of Illinois Hospital and a federal housing grant since May of 2016. He was one of 26 homeless patients, often called ER super users, the hospital placed in housing. Baker, who suffers from asthma and high blood pressure, among other things, says his health has gotten much better since he has a place to live. Baker says, my health may have improved a whole 90-95% because I don't have to worry about when it's cold outside. Stephen Brown asks, housing is health, right? And that's it. That is the guy who runs the housing prospect project at the hospital, Stephen Brown. It is. Housing is health. Back to these, you know. So that's a good thing we could do. But we're working against incentives from police or police officers who have incentives to commit crimes in order to quote, catch criminals, even if they are innocent. A lot of this, I'm going to read from a New York Times article, a lot of this reporting was originally done by um, 
Justin Fenton and Kevin Rector over at the Baltimore Sun. But Timothy Williams wrote the, about this today over at uh, over at the New York Times. And Baltimore brazen officers took every chance to rob and cheat. Stacks of bills, $100,000 in all, taken from a safe of an innocent person, I'll add. Garbage bags full of stolen prescription drugs dumped on the black market. Motorist robbed of $25,000. We're not carried out by normal criminals, but by Baltimore police officers. The daily disclosures of dangerous, embarrassing, and shameless acts come at a particularly bad time for the Baltimore Police Department, which is battling a runaway crime problem in an environment already poisoned by deep mistrust by the police. The department was, in fact, already under investigation by the federal government for systemic civil rights violations while the officers carried out many of their crimes, which include selling seized guns and drugs back onto the street, sending innocent people to jail, recruiting civilians to rob drug dealers, and using GPS devices to track and rob the innocent. Six officers have already pleaded guilty. Four are testifying against the two who are now on trial. Remember also the officers who, who are the part of the drug task force up there who dropped, you know, planted their own drugs and then you know, staged the event with their, with their body cams because they didn't realize that the body cams was actually recording 30 seconds before. When they hit the button, it automatically had that 30 seconds and they you know, just didn't realize that. New York Times article continues, the case fits a pattern of corruption scandals involving anti-crime units that rack up arrests and praise, but do not have enough supervision, says Peter Moskos, a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York, and a former Baltimore police officer who went to the academy with one of the accused officers. This one is far worse, he said, quote, it's shocking what they've done and how long they've been doing it. Cases raise questions about the beleaguered department's ability to reform itself or fight crime effectively. Quote, Baltimore juries, already famously skeptical of police, will now be that much less inclined to take officers at the word, and witnesses will now be even more reluctant to cooperate, a Baltimore Sun editorial said. We have a very similar issue here in D.C. We haven't quite had the same scandal break, um, and I'm not going to say that our it's quite as bad down here, but there's no reason to believe it's not. There is certainly that suspicion of police officers on juries around here, depending upon who's on the jury, certainly, because D.C. is Washington, white-collar Washington, and D.C. are two very different places. Northwest Northwest D.C. is not like the other three parts. I prefer the other three parts, frankly. It's not just a few bad apples. And if it were, was just a few bad apples with police officers across the country and Baltimore and across the country, then it's up to the rest of them to speak up and point out which apples are rotten. The saying is, a few bad apples, one bad apple spoils the bunch. So I don't know why people are talking about, oh, it's just a few bad apples. Okay, but that spoils the bunch. What? Finish the saying. And this brings me to an article I wrote just a couple weeks ago. It was never about the drugs, and it still isn't. And and the whole thing, John Ehrlichman, who is assistant to the president for domestic affairs under Nixon, in 1994 told a Harper's Magazine journalist, 
quote, you know what this was really about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. It has been... So the laws on the books have been set up for political expedience. The police forces that enforce these laws are incentivized to arrest innocent people to keep their quotas up and to keep that money rolling in for fighting the war on drugs and the military equipment and all this. It's also been heavily criminalized to be poor. Because we're trying to, now, as soon as the anti-tax Republicans got in, started slashing budgets, slashing taxes and all this, you need to generate revenue another way. So you increase citations for this or that. You increase fines for this or that. You levy higher interest rates on those fines. And you ultimately arrest people to work in private prisons for sweatshop wages. What happens if you're a corporate criminal, though? Again, this all started with Edward Brown in St. Louis not able to pay his fines. Elizabeth Warren tells a very different story. Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts tells a very different story about meeting with Jamie Dimon in uh, 2014. She writes in the, in the afterword of her book, When the conversation turned to financial regulation and Diamond began complaining about all the burdensome rules his bank had to follow, I finally interrupted. I was polite but definite. No, I didn't think the biggest banks were overregulated. In fact, I couldn't believe he was complaining about the regulatory constraints less than a year after his bank had lost billions in the infamous London whale high-risk trading episode. I said I thought the banks were still taking on too much risk and they seemed to be believed the taxpayers would bail them out again if something went wrong. That entire paragraph is still true, by the way. Moving on, she says, Our exchange heated up quickly. By the time we got to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, we weren't quite shouting, but we were definitely raising our voices. At this point, in early 2013, Rich Cordray was still serving as the director of the consumer agency under a recess appointment. He hadn't yet been confirmed by the Senate, which meant that the agency was vulnerable to legal challenges over its work. Diamond told me what he thought it would take to get Congress to confirm a director, terms that included gutting the agency's power to regulate the banks like his. This is a banker telling a senator what he thinks it'll take to pass through Congress. Why do you think he has any has that power? Because he, he owns a number of senators. The bank does at this point. Elizabeth Warren goes on, By this point I was furious. Dog Frank had created default provisions that would automatically go into effect if there was no confirmed director, and his bank was almost certainly not in compliance with those rules, I told him, that if that happened, I think you guys are breaking the law. Suddenly, Diamond got quiet. He leaned back and slowly smiled. So hit me with a fine. We can afford it. It's the difference between, I guess, corporate America and being an actual living, breathing American. Most living, breathing Americans don't have enough savings to afford to get sick. Most living, breathing Americans don't have enough savings to afford a speeding ticket. To afford a citation for their lawn being too tall. But corporate America can. 
Equifax. Remember them? I want to. I want to. I want the company to have just be. I want the. I want to bring the corporate death penalty back, and I want Equifax to be prime for it. And we should seize whatever assets might actually be there while we're at it. But Mick Mulvaney disagrees. Mick Mulvaney's Consumer Finance Protection Bureau just just drops any of the probe. Why? You know, 143 million people's records were breached, including all you know your social security information, anything, and really anything that pertains to your finances, which is everything, because in America you are more of your. Ba- you're more meaningful as the number on your bank account than as the the name you were given at birth. And that's uh, why there's there, there no one bats an eye. None of the powers that be bat an eye about criminalizing heavily being black and or Latino or Native American and uh, and poor. And then throwing you in jail into a private prison where they can extract profit from you, both from federal tax dollars and from your labor. They don't bat an eye about that because you don't have a bank. Those people don't have bank accounts, many of them. That's why they want to rele- relax the payday lending rules so that people can end up in a faster trap than you taking out a loan. Payday lending, by the way, is a fantastic way. For people to end up in that first debt trap. And what happens if you maintain a company that's responsible for the deaths of 29 miners in West Virginia? Fresh out of prison, reviled coal baron Don Blankenship is running for the U.S. Senate. He didn't, he's not responsible. The court told them that you cannot, you know, he's not responsible for the 29 deaths of those miners. That's not what that court case is about. It was about whether he defrauded investors. Remember what I said before, if, uh, if it comes down to whether, whether you're going to get defrauded, if, whether an executive is lying to the public or his investors, you can bet that he's not lying to his investors with the contradictory stories. And if he is, he'll go to jail for a year where he can come out and run for West Virginia Senate. If you're poor, you can stay poor in America. You can get three hots caught in health care. And your labor will be worth about 80 cents an hour. But if you're rich, you run a company responsible for the deaths of 29 people or poisoning the water, you can run for Senate. If you have enough money, you just pay the fine. And if you completely failed at your job of keeping people's stuff private and anything, don't worry. Mick Mulvaney doesn't care. You just go right on about doing it. How much worse could it get? This has been Troy Miller reminding you that it's a crime to be poor. This has been Troy Miller's Waste of Breath Radio. Remember to share, comment, like, and tune in next time.